Hi there, you're listening to the podcast version of 3CR's Monday Breakfast Show. Catch us live every Monday at 7am at 855 on your AM dial, streaming 3CR on the TuneIn app or at 3cr.org.au. Enjoy the show. 3CR would like to acknowledge the Kulin Nations, true owners, caretakers and custodians of the land from which we broadcast. 3CR pays respects to elders, past and present of the Kulin Nation, and we recognise their unceded sovereignty. CR Breakfast. Oh, yeah. Alternative news, analysis and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. Good morning, you're listening to Monday Breakfast here on 3CR Community Radio. Um, this is Will, as ever, as ever on Monday morning. Hello everyone. Uh, I'll be joined by James as well, who's co-hosting the show today. He's just greeting some of our first guests for the show, and um, they're filing into the studio. Come on in, guys. Good morning, everyone. Um, so uh, today on the show, we've got heaps of things going on. Um, we've got uh, later in the show, we'll be having some updates from the Stolen Wealth Games protest happening over on on the Gold Coast um, in relation to the Commonwealth Games. Um, so we'll bring you some updates on that as we have been um, with fairly continuous coverage on the breakfast shows here on 3CR Community Radio. Um, uh, also in the show, we're going to be starting off at the top of the show with some guests from the Comedy Festival, um, who are sitting in the studio. We're not going to start interviewing you right now, so get, get it settled in, relax, but who are we speaking to today? Uh, we're going to be talking to Elise and Lucas about a sketch show that's happening as part of the Melbourne International Comedy mm. Festival. That's pretty exciting. And then after that, we're speaking to someone from the Australian Book Review, is that right? Yeah, it's the 40th birthday of the Australian Book Review this year, and this is the 400th edition, mm. which is a... Fairly big number. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, yeah, we're going to be chatting, I guess, a little bit about how the industry and literature kind of has changed, which is quite a lot, I think, mm-hmm. over that time. Wonderful. Okay. Well, we're looking forward to that, definitely. Um, and then after that, we'll be hearing from Lee Eubank, who's a representative of Friends of the Earth. Um, we're going to be hearing, uh, getting, catching up on the latest news with um, Victoria's emissions reductions targets and what's been happening in that space. After that, the folks from Over the Wall are going to be wrapping up their interview with Josh Cullinan from the Retail and Fast Food Workers Union. We've had some pretty good long, um, long form coverage from, from Over the Wall on what's happening in the Retail and Fast Food Workers Union sort of space. And so that'll be great to catch up on. Quite a few people have, yeah. um, gave us feedback about how much they've yeah. enjoyed, um, that segment that's been running as well. Yeah, fantastic. And, um, then after that, we'll be speaking to a representative, representative, of LASNet, which is the Latin American Solidarity Network. You may or may not have heard, um, quite a lot is happening in Brazil at the moment. We've seen another politician arrested for corruption. This time it is the previous president but one, if that makes any sense, Lula da Silva. He's a fairly famous figure in the, um, in the left, center-left kind of populist, um, uh, political area, uh, arena in South America. And so he's, uh, handed himself into um, police custody following um, a fairly controversial um, corruption case and um, calls by the military for him to be arrested. Um, so that, that's um, definitely something we're going to be interested interested to talk about. And then, like I said at the top, we're going to be um, closing out the show with some coverage of the Stolen Wealth Games. Um, so starting off the show... Unless we have anything else to go over. No, no, okay. We're going to go straight into alternative news. Some folks know about it, some don't. Some will learn to shout it, some.
In the Weekend Australian, I was reading um, a great headline as well, which I'll read. is The Greens' Radical Manifesto to Bleed the Rich. Just Bleed the Rich. Hmm. Great headline, I thought. But um, the article goes on to talk about, yes, from the New South Wales Greens, that they're pushing a, quote, hardline, hard-left policy manifesto. And it's really talking about creating tax cuts, um, for the billionaires, a billionaire's tax, basically, to try to get money off billionaires, which the Australian is, for some reason, opposed to. But uh, I guess it, the interesting thing that I, I found from it as well is it's something that we've been talking about is Richard Dinatale's kind of pushed a little bit more towards the centre or right sort of um, policy within the Greens. And to go behind the, the article, I guess, is... This is showing that there is actually still, you know, quite a left-wing basis that's wanting to keep the the party closer to what, you know, those people would, would view as the Greens' kind of ideals and, and politics. So I think, yeah, it's a really interesting, the kind of struggle that's continuing to happen within the Greens, the fight for ideas and policies. Yeah, uh, we were having a conversation off mic quite a while ago, but um, the, the point was raised that the Greens suffer from a lack of like ideological center mm-hmm. for the for their um for their policy making so whereas you know you've got labor who still have a, a sort of a very big variety of viewpoints within labor they still have the labor union labor movement as sort of their their central axis for um political conversation so i suppose that's what makes that what can make the greens party a bit more um volatile yeah, I guess they're they're more susceptible to swings in public opinion and ideas. And we mm. saw some of what you just said then in the Batman by-election, mm. where they had a heavily campaign-based focus for the cam- for the electorate, mm. and with the Stopadani issues, and also about refugees. But as soon as the Labor Party chose to run a left-wing candidate and speak on, as you said. Um, Labor values, I guess, or you know, union politics. They, they won because the people that would have uh, wanted to vote for a left-wing candidate saw the Labor Party actually put someone up, and they just decided to go for that. So it is an interesting grounds in which they're kind of fighting for that. Mm. Um, there, there is, of course, in fighting in other parties. We've got um, famously factional Labor Party, but also. Uh, the Liberal Party have experiencing their own ructions at the moment. You may have heard that it's been 30 negative news polls for Malcolm Turnbull as a leader. Um, we won't spend too much time on that, but I thought it just might be helpful to know what people are talking about when it comes to um, the news polls. Essentially, as, my, as I understand it, because I wasn't really paying attention at the time, but um, when Malcolm Turnbull turfed um, Tony Abbott, it was um, part of his reasoning was that um, Tony Abbott had suffered 30 negative news polls um, as leader, um, 
and so that was part of his reasoning as to why Tony Abbott was clearly un- unpopular enough to be replaced as leader of the Labour Party and as leader um, as Prime Minister of Australia. There was even calls on the weekend that Peter Costello be making a comeback oh. as Liberal leader, which right, okay, mm. we still have it in. Oh, let's hope not. But oh, God. Uh, yeah, I think that. Mm. It's interesting, I guess, in, just in a sense of the precedent that was set by not just Abbott, but the um, Rudd and Gillard uh, leadership as well, because clearly they were really driven by polls also. Mm. But, I mean, I guess from as much as, you know, it's good to see the Liberal Party struggling with some of these things, that they really, uh, they should be paying no attention to the polls. They should be doing what they think is right and, mm. you know, be governing. It's mm. not... It's just a small, it's not, the polls are a small amount of people that are, you know, given a view on something. It's Mm -hmm. not actually representative of, like, a true democratic vote, which is what they were elected on, so. Mm. Well, that's all that needs to be said on that, I suppose. (laughs) Um, Moving along to something a slightly bit more interesting, this is also in relation to the the Commonwealth Games and the the accompanying Stolen Wealth Games protest um, that we'll be um, hearing more about at the end of the show. But an article by Jack Lattimore in Indigenous, Indigenous X, um, which if you don't know about is a pretty um, helpful resource of, um, of opinion and analysis by Indigenous writers, um, indigenousx.com.au is where you'd be able to find them. And the article is um, a recent reflection on the fact that the head of the Commonwealth Games Federation actually visited the protest camp, um, the Stolen North Games protesters, and um, spoke to them for two hours, um, according to a report from um, from a representative of the Brisbane Aboriginal Embassy. I think I may have gotten the name wrong, but I'll um, but I'll correct that later on the show. Um, he didn't come with a security escort or anything; just turned up with um, with a group of officials, and they sat and spoke for two hours, which is um, which is a much better reception than the state government have given <laughs> to. To um to the protesters, so I think that's um uh, th- there have been representatives from the Gold Coast Commonwealth Games Organising Committee as well. Um, they they um turned up earlier and they had a similar conversation. And um, although there have been no commitments um given at those particular visits, it was um in the previous Commonwealth Games, I believe that the Commonwealth Games um organiser, the the same um person who turned up, um I'm just looking for the name. Grevenberg is his name, David Grevenberg, um, committed to uh, a, a human rights charter or a human rights policy for the Commonwealth Games and um, hopefully his experience at, um, at the protest at the Stolen Wealth Games will fi- fi- um, figure into that. Um, also, just, just other, other groups who have been visiting the Stolen Wealth Games camp, including um, a contingent from Ghana, um, and also, according to the Twitter, fleet, Twitter feed of the same author of that article, Jack Lattimore, um, representatives from Zimbabwe have also visited. And so, um, you know, a couple of eyes on the on the Stolen Wealth Games protesters, just um, not so many from larger media outlets. Well, that, I mean, there has been a little bit of coverage from the mainstream oh, yeah. media outlets yeah. of some of the protests. but mm. And I think there was a talk that uh, I went to earlier this year, uh, Black GST, and fellow 3CR broadcaster Robbie Thorpe was speaking at and one of the things, it was a reflection on the Stolen Wealth Games protests in Melbourne and one of the things he spoke about is that 
while you know it's been really difficult for that Australians and the Australian media are not paying enough attention or doing enough about Aboriginal rights here, whenever there's an international event, that that's why we need to be putting this in the focus. And I think that that is certainly a part of what what is happening at the moment. Mm. Yeah, fantastic. Um, do we have anything else for alternative news today? I don't think so. No, that's good. Apart from the weather, um, just so you folks know what's going on outside of your house, uh, we thought I'd let you know that um, right now it's 16 degrees. We're looking at a top of 23. It's going to be partly cloudy, and I'm not seeing any uh, rain on the radar, just you know, little drops here and there, so it's not going to be heavily wet outside, although fairly humid, 89%. So um, watch out for that. Up to a top of 23, so it's not going to be too hot. Uh, this is Monday Breakfast here on 3CR Community Radio. We'll be right back. One of Melbourne's longest-running hospitals, St Vincent's Hospital, is turning 125. They're calling on community to help rising funds. To support the vital work of the hospital by participating in a pyjama-themed fun run. On Sunday, April 15, at Princess Park in Carlton North. Registrations are now open. For more information, head to stvincentsfunrun.org.au. St Vincent's is a 3CR supporter. Love us, we see our radical radio t shirts, and so do we. They're a bargain at $20 for adults and $15 for kids, and come in black, white, gray, and a cool light blue. To nab one of these beauties, drop into the station at 21 Smith Street or order by phoning 9419 8377. Or you can visit us online at 3cr.org.au forward slash shop. Come on, you know you want one. Uh, Hi, my name's Sarah. I love coming here because they offer vegan food. Hi, my name's Paul. This is my first time at Friends of the Earth. I think it's really awesome and the food's great really healthy and nutritious. Friends of the Earth Food Co-op, 312 Smith Street, Collingwood. A tuneful experience. A 3CR supporter. Hi, this is Hugo the Poet. You're listening to 3CR. And by doing that, you're supporting community radio, an incredibly important institution in our times. Welcome back to Monday Breakfast on 3CR, and we're lucky enough to be joined in the studio by Elise and Lucas, part of a Melbourne International Comedy Festival show, This Is A Sketch Show. Thanks for joining us. No problem. Thank you. So, well, it's, there's so many, I think there's 600 or 700 shows or some ridiculous amount like that on the festival. Yeah. But I think over the last few years, the improv sketch um, perf- uh, performances have really taken off and there's really a whole lot more than I think there ever has been. Oh, absolutely. The Particularly the improv community has absolutely exploded over the last couple of years and Sketch is running slightly behind it, struggling to catch up, uh, but we're going to get there. Uh, yeah, it's really great to see uh, some more diversity just than the regular stand-up that people might know the comedy festival for. And tell us a little bit about your shows. Perform as part of the Improv Conspiracy Theatre. 
Yeah, so we've uh, formed a sketch comedy troupe uh, earlier last year and we do a monthly show uh, down at the Improv Conspiracy. So this comedy festival show is a best of uh, everything that we created last year. Uh, Fridays and Sundays. <laughs> <laughs> and I guess, yeah, like the Improv Conspiracy, obviously um, I I do some shows there occasionally as well, so I know a little bit about it, but the... Um, the improv, I guess, has been something that's happening there for quite a while, and mm. there are classes that most people have done to be a part of the shows there. Mm-hmm. And the sketch classes is something that is a bit newer, and I guess that they kind of can evolve from improv as well, though, can't they? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, everyone who's playing in the cast of This Is A Sketch Show has come up through the improv program as well, uh, which I think gives a really nice energy to the work that we're doing, because you know that you can chuck out an ad ad lib, change things up from night to night, and anyone on the stage is going to be able to handle what you throw at them. So Yeah, the skills definitely bleed into each other, I think, um, just to make it a lot easier to work with other people and keep it playful and um, make sure that what you're doing each night is fresh for your audience. Yeah. What do you think about, I mean, I think obviously the comedy festival is such a big thing in Melbourne. I mean, I think... You know, some people would say is one of the best comedy festivals that around the world, and, and obviously it draws a lot of attention. What, what do you think? Is there a difference between performing regularly throughout the year and performing as part of the festival? Yeah, definitely. Uh, I mean, one, the audience is just there for you during the comedy festival. Everyone is aware of it, um, and there's a fabulous sense of community um, all through the city mm-hmm. while the festival's going. Uh, which is fantastic. But at the same time, it's a bit of a double-edged sword because there is so much competition. Uh, It can be tricky to find your audience um, amongst that bigger crowd, uh, particularly when a lot of the people that come in who perhaps aren't as familiar with the comedy scene in Melbourne, they are going to gravitate towards those bigger names that they've seen on the TV um, Mm -hmm. and perhaps not so much, you know, the little gigs that are happening down the alleys and in the spare rooms of but the it city. is nice if you've got like your thing on like a little card to say when it is and it's near a big name and they put the sold out sticker on the big name and then they chuck a photo on Instagram to show that they're sold out and they're like oh well, what do I do now and yours is kind of in the bottom corner of that so you get some free publicity out of it <laughs> yeah right yeah accidental marketing yeah I yeah. like that yeah. and I guess you spoke before Lisa about I guess the way that the scene has kind of the improv community especially and, and mm. from that sketch as well that has really grown, and um, I guess, you know, a lot of the uh, inspiration and stylings and teachings and stuff has come from America. Yeah. Um, and there's a kind of, I guess, a set path in a way in America of the SNLs type, um, or, you know, movies and TV and all that kind of thing. But how do you see, like, that kind of developing in Australia? I mean, we've seen a little bit more comedy and things through the ABC recently. Yeah, I think improv and Sketch are both more inclusive uh, in terms of bringing up new talent, uh, getting out on the stand-up scene. It can be a little bit of a hostile environment sometimes. Um, You're getting out there by yourself. It's very competitive, Uh, whereas coming up through improv, it's a much more nurturing environment, and so you're getting people who have a bit of a different comedic vision, uh, who are doing things that are a little bit different and I think that can only bring greater things for 
the sort of TV comedy landscape in the future as we sort of build up these new voices that are going to be able to bring something a bit different to our screens. I, I really see the, I guess, particularly the improv kind of feeling as like very similar to a sports kind of team uh, in mm-hmm. the sense of the the way, you know, it's very much um, relied on each other working together as a team and, you know, even I guess a lot of the uh, language is around training and coaching and things like that, which are very much sports terms. And, yeah, I guess I, I wonder the kind of America and particularly some of the places like Chicago and um, Melbourne are very sports kind of driven mm. cities as well. And I wonder the kind of influence of that versus some of the more individualistic, I guess, acting um, and stand-up things are very competitive and about your own individual kind of talent. Yeah, I think that um, the sort of improv vibe is a lot more collaborative, which I think is better to build people up, um, that you can bring your own skill set, but you can learn so much from everybody else, I mm-hmm. guess similar to that sports thing. Um, and having that environment around, like, I've only been in Melbourne for two years, so if I was sort of looking for anything, it was in New South Wales, and the the energy, the vibe is just not there. Um, I mean, I was in a smaller town in New South Wales, so there wasn't a big chance that there was going to be a huge community for that sort of thing, but there is definitely that supportive network down here, trying to build people up instead of splitting off into individual successes. Yeah, there's definitely more of a energy of fostering talent and when you're up on stage it's more about making the people that you're up there with look good rather than trying to be the shining star that's mm-hmm. got all the witty one-liners uh, if you're all working together trying to make each other look as good as possible that's when you get the great shows and I think yeah to take nothing away from stand-up and, and other performance um, performances and performers but I think it's something that you know is really uh, an important part of society that we let go a lot is that um, in that strive for individualistic kind of um, goals and, and whatever, that actually working together as communities and trying to work with each other and that we all have like individual skills that we can rely on each other to help is a pretty important thing that we could put into all of life, I think. Yeah, you're going to create work that's so much more interesting when you're taking on the viewpoints of others and I know that I've seen the sketches that I write become so much better from the input of the other people on the team and the ways that they've played with the material on stage. It's just been amazing to see. So what is the process in terms of um, coming up with a sketch performance? Like how do you how do you both kind of come, come about to getting inspiration or writing and how does it look when it's, it's kind of put up on stage? Uh, mine is usually a last-minute deadline meet, <laughs> um, like putting it off as long as possible and then the desperate three hours where I'm supposed to have something to present. Um, but I think the good thing about the collaborative environment is you can sort of just chuck anything down and then once it's read out or um, or you get these other people with different perspectives talking about it that it just becomes more than what it was, so you can take it away and rewrite it. Um, and then it just makes you look really... Um, smart and clever <laughs> as a writer um, when, you know, earlier in the day you were freaking out because you had nothing to write. So um, I think it's invaluable to have those other people around, um, especially because most of the time you're writing stuff that you wouldn't necessarily be able to do performance-wise, um, which is cool. Yeah, as you get to know the other people on your team, you sort of start to write to their strengths as well and think of ways that you can make them shine. Yeah. Has there been times where when you've written a sketch that once it's performed, you're like, 
Oh, that's not really what I wanted. I mean, a positive and negative, oh. I guess. Yeah, yeah definitely. definitely cuts both ways. Mm-hmm. Um, there have been sketches that I've written that on paper and in the writer's room, they go down a treat and then you get it in front of an audience and it's just not quite the same. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that the the positive surprises outweigh the the negative surprises, which is good. Yeah. Um, like the discovery and stuff like that usually... Um, adds a layer to it that you didn't know was there rather than somebody ballsing it up. Yeah. yeah. Um, so just, I guess, before we wrap up, just tell us a little bit about um, the show itself and what people can expect coming along and some of the details. Yeah, so it's a pretty eclectic collection of sketches, mm-hmm. um, all pretty high-energy, absurd sort of stuff. Um, yeah, it's like, so it's the best of from um, all of the shows that we've done over the last nine months or however long it's been. Um, yeah. It's all material that we sort of worked on that's evolved over yep. the last year. Um, just keeping it weird, hopefully yeah. keeping it entertaining. A lot of horse content. Yep. For some reason. Lots of <laughs> dancing for no reason. Yeah. So yeah. Things emerge in your work over time and ours is horses and dance. Yeah. So <laughs> if you like horses and dance, then... Come on down to This Is A Sketch Show. And Bad dancing horses or completely separate? We have a low budget, so there will be no actual horses. <laughs> <laughs> and it's something that is really accessible for anyone, no matter their kind of level of experience of watching different types of comedy and stuff that they'll oh, be... absolutely. Yeah. Um I think yeah, there's a great tradition of sketch comedy in Australia. It's the sort of thing that I think most fans of comedy will be familiar with. Um, there's nothing too out there. It's all stuff that you can just come in off the street and yeah. enjoy. Yeah. And so just before we go, just give, give us the details of when the show is and how people can get tickets. Yes. Uh, so we're on Friday nights at 7 o'clock and Sunday nights at 8.30. Uh, you can get tickets through uh, comedyfestival.com.au or through the Improv Conspiracy website. Uh, it's ten dollars, so we're a pretty cheap comedy festival show. Mm-hmm. It's yeah. You get what you pay for. <laughs> <laughs> Sell it. Uh, so that's the next two weekends um, up until the end of the comedy festival. Yeah. Well, great. Well, thanks a lot for coming in this morning. It was really great to chat, and I think about not just your show, but to give people a bit of an idea about some of the behind the scenes of of how to write sketches and also just a bit about, I guess, the comedy scene and things behind the curtain, as it were. Um, Thanks thanks for Thank you. Sintonizando 3CR 855 de tu dial AM. Sedoy Moro as Radio 3CR 855 AM. Mishanavit. Kính thưa quý vị, đây là đài phát thanh 3CR trên lần sóng AM 855. Kính mời quý vị đón nghe. AM. Each week. 
3CR broadcasts over 130 programs in 25 languages, supporting communities and viewpoints that you just don't hear about anywhere else. Subscribe to your award-winning multilingual community radio station, 3CR, and help keep these voices on the airwaves. Call the station on 94198377. The number is again 94198377. Why do you reckon people should subscribe to 3CR? Because I think we have more awesome music shows than anywhere else. And they're niche and they're interesting and they're adventurous. 3CR, the perfect companion in your car on your road trip. If you're on digital, no tram interference. But if you're streaming, there's no tram interference. No. That's true. But if you like tram, interference is always the AM. The AM, old school. <laughs> oh, like, oh. You know, some people like the crack along vinyl. Well, you know, some, some people like noise music. Experimental mm-hmm, noise music. To subscribe to 3CR, unwaged is $35. Yes. yes. Waged? 75 And solidarity? 150 $150. That's pretty reasonable to help keep 3CR on air. Call 3CR 94198377 and subscribe. Subscribe today. Subscribe now. This is Pressure MC from the Hilltop Hoods. Hey, what's up? This is Safa from the Hilltop Hoods. You're listening to 3CR, 855 AM on your dial. Support community radio and subscribe now. Welcome back to Monday Breakfast on 3CR. And we're lucky enough to have the Australian Book Review editor, Peter Rose, on the line. And the Australian Book Review is celebrating both its 40th birthday this year and the current issue is the 400th edition. That's a, that's a great achievement and dual achievements there, uh, Peter. Thanks a lot for joining us. Good morning, James. And I guess to start off with, it's, it seems an obvious kind of thing to start with, I guess, but um, 40, 40 years, there's been some huge changes uh, in the arts, literature, and I guess particularly publishing over that period of time in um, the decline in some ways of, of people buying physical books and then I think a re reimagining of that in, in some ways and how people view content online. Yes, the changes have been extraordinary since Australian Book Review was revived in 1978. There'd been a first run, of course, uh, led by Max Harris and other people in Adelaide in the 60s, but we're counting this as the uh, 40th birthday, and it is the 400th issue in the in the second series. Um, in 1978, the literature was pretty small. Um, we can forget that in about, I think it was 1975, there was something like eight to ten novels published in this country. Um, it was uh, it was a, a, a tiny publishing industry, and that's no longer the case now. During my Many years at ABR, I've witnessed such an expansion in book publishing, and I think it may be we may be doing something like 
six, seven thousand books a year. Um, that, that's an enormous transformation um, and attests, I think, to the health of that creative sector and the fact that somehow publishers have withstood the serious threats to um, book publishing, um, being part of a, 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 a global sector that produces hundreds of thousands of books um, with immense recreational alternatives now that are before before people. And then, of course, whenever it was 10 years ago, maybe the rise of the e-book. It's, it's resilient. Um, when I last looked at those Penguin Random House profits, um, my mouth watered. Um, it's not an unprofitable sector if you get it right. Um, and, and similarly, I think for, for magazines like Australian Book Review, um, if you're adaptive and pretty hardworking as, uh, our outfit is, then the future is perhaps rosier for the cultural magazine than, than we thought about 10 years ago when, frankly, a lot of us were pretty worried about the future. That's one of the things that has really developed in our society over the last few years is a ratings sort of system of everywhere you go, people want to be rated on how how they've done with their service. And, you know, in some way, the reviews really fit into a pattern here as well, don't they? I mean... You're getting a, a rating on, on what people think of your of your book, your your um, anything anything that is. How have you, do you see that there's a kind of a correlation between those kind of things in the way that we are taking in reviews now? I, th- I think the generally an ABR review conforms to standards of book reviewing that have been in place for a century um, around the world. Um, I don't think our reviews fundamentally uh, are fundamentally different from those in the, that very first uh, series, that impressive um, series that Max Harris and Rosemary White and, um, produced. We offer independent, we hope knowledgeable, responsible, stylish, well-edited readings of books. I don't think that's changed a lot. In terms of references, of course, have, because scholars and writers and critics of all kinds are, I suppose, attuned to sensitivities um, and ideologies that weren't on the map in the 60s or the 70s. That, that's changed a lot. But we, we remain an independent magazine. Australian Book Review is not a, a trade magazine, so we don't, we don't rate the books as it were. We don't give a, a, a star rating and, and I hope we never do. Um, we have, of course, expanded into all the arts uh, through ABR Arts, which is open access, where we review film, theatre, musical kinds, dance, opera, blah, blah. And there we do attach a rating, I think just because when we created ABR Arts three years ago, we realised that if we were going to be in the business of rating new um, theatrical productions or films, we simply had to play the game and give it a star rating. But 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 we did so a little a little bit reluctantly, and it's not central to the review itself. You know that that is one person's knowledgeable estimation of the worth of that particular work of art. Well, I wanted to speak about some of the things that are featured in the current issue, and one that. Uh, caught my attention was We 300 by Lucas Granger-Brown. It's about life in the cadets coming straight out of school. 
I'm, I'm glad it did because it's, I think it's a terrific work and uh, Lucas Granger-Brown becomes the youngest person to win the Calibre SA Prize, um, which we've offered now for about 12 years and, and worth $7,500 in all. Uh, Lucas came through a, a really strong field of um, about 200 essays. I was one of the three judges and it's fantastic um, to to honour uh, such a young, a young and bright writer, um, and uh, his essay won on on merit, of course, just because of the urgency of that subject about what it's like for a, a pretty bookish, rather sheltered high school boy uh, to go straight into something called the Australian Defence Force Academy. I mean, the the old school cadet in me winced at what I was reading about that kind of brutalization and in that very macho macho world and and people are connecting with it i think because he he, he does it with real sensitivity but but candor to you know to essential qualities of an essayist and the caliber prize is uh, always the you know one of the highlights of our publishing and it was great to be able to get the caliber uh, prize essay into our 400th issue um but uh, there is you know i there are lots of good things in the issue, I hope. Uh, we made a longer one, uh, 76 pages. They don't normally run to that. And um, we, uh, I was keen to introduce a lot of the, um, the, the, the uh, critics and writers who have really, I think, um, made, uh, made ABR's reputation over the past 20, 30 years. There are a lot of people who have been writing for it um, for many years, people like um, Brendan Isle, Karen Goldsworthy, James Walter, Neil Blewett, um, and uh, Andrea Goldsmith. But along the way, there are some newcomers, as in any issue of ABR. So we we mix it up. Um, ABR's got. If you're interested, and some of your listeners may be interested, we've got an open door for bright young people who are very literary, and uh, I always welcome approaches from them. And and very often we go on to give them a give them a commission and see how it goes in the magazine. One of the, rev- well, the review of the month, as it is put here, is by David Brophy, who we had on the show a little while ago. And I think that his review, which is of Clive Hamilton's um, book about China's influence in Australia, it really goes to show, I guess, the impact of what that some of the articles in the Australian Book Review can have, because it really intersected into the public sphere about that conversation and probably you know in some ways more than Clive Hamilton's book in to be able to actually have that conversation about what is happening in Australian politics and and obviously that's been a really big issue over the last little while is about China's influence in Australia and and yeah I just felt like that was a really powerful piece in being able to play a role in the Australian political sphere. We were really thrilled to be able to publish David's piece. He's someone I only got to know last year when I went up to Sydney and uh, where he teaches at the university and very bright young sinologist. And um, so it was fantastic to have uh, access to someone with his direct experience of China. He spent a lot of time there. He has many languages in that region. And someone also with the kind of with the guts, I suppose, to take on a major book and a major author and and disagree. I mean, that's what that's what criticism is about. I sometimes think we could do do a bit do with a bit more disagreement in our in our our cultural 
um, magazines and our, 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 our book pages, and it was a, an interesting clash. It was a good example for us. The, the magazine goes on changing, has to really, and um, that was one where we published it online. The minute we got it, we'd missed the March issue, and it had a really interesting and goes on having an interesting life online. Um, not, nothing I've published has had so many hits so quickly. I mean, it, it sort of was completely off our chart, and that was fun to watch too. And then, of course, we can give it a print life uh, in the next issue because there are some people who prefer just to read the print edition. So it's that, I think, combination when you have, um, when you have a, a very capable critic writing on a, a, a book of considerable moment. The previous month, it had been Gideon Haig when he absolutely tore into Michael Wolff's book on Trump's White House and we did the same thing there and it had a it had a similar a similar effect. So I think followers of Australian Book Review are going to see more of that um, kind of online publishing to complement the um, complement the contents of the print magazine. Well I think that that is really uh, a positive thing and having that kind of debate in our society and culture I think is a really important part of trying to, you know, make decisions about the world and, and see things from all kind of angles. Yes, and, and, and so many publications around the world do this now. I mean, we, you know, when I began as editor in 2001, there was really just a print magazine. That's what ABR did. And when I think now to the range of programs and the range of offerings, um, it's, it's unrecognisable. And really any, any magazine in, or newspaper intent on survival has gone down that road. I mean, we, we basically all do about five times as, as many things. But I think the range of commentary um, online now is so rich. I mean, every morning I've been up this morning and just reading newspapers and, and, and looking at sites that, you know, the, 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 the quality of the uh, very quick journalism um, that you can access now is, is so much more diverse than it was when I was growing up when you were really just stuck with those the the big you know institutional broadsheet in Melbourne now we've got access if you want it to such great journalism um, from around the world and that's what ABR is trying to to complement um, to to maintain those those sort of standards of of um, of scholarship and expertise and quality yeah, I guess with that, there's not, um, like you say, that there's a, such a wide depth of ways that people can engage in uh, in all of this kind of medium itself. But I guess, yeah, with that, it's about people finding the thing that they, they want to and, and sorting through some of that kind of information itself because it's not necessarily some of the, like you say, the, the mainstream newspapers, they perhaps have, have changed in the way that they report things, but there's a like the landscape is constantly changing and people need to kind of be really assertive in in how they want their media to come about i guess yeah and and people are aren't they i mean when you when you just look at the way people are avidly consuming text in new forms now you don't often see a someone reading a book on a a tram but they're you know people people are reading a novel or, or checking out some some website not all of them but they're enough you know there are enough people who are still hungry for ideas um, and uh, it gives it gives us hope and and that's measurable you know there's been a at last a bit of a reversal in the the rapid slump in 
newspaper sales and magazines recording recording growth. We're certainly seeing that at ABR as we offer people different ways of accessing it and 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 offer them different subscription models because many consumers nowadays, especially younger ones, aren't interested in the old traditional model that my generation grew up with. Um, and and if you if you're if you're flexible, I think that 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 readership and that influence will come. And we see it through, you know, I think the magazine sector, we've had very close relations with our, uh, the other magazines, and um, I think it's in, in terrific shape. I think there are great choices when people go into bookshops or roam around the websites. Well, we really appreciate you coming on today, and we've had Peter Rose, the Australian Book Review Editor, and thanks a lot for um, having chatted to us about the issue and, and about some of the things that have been really a part of the, the industry over the last 40 years. Thanks so much, James. I appreciate it. Thank you. by the People's Committee for Melbourne every Wednesday at 9am. City Limits is Melbourne's only hour devoted to our urban environment. To transport and planning and housing issues. To privatisations and our utility services. To building and or maintaining a sense of community. 855 on the AM band if we can hear it through the noise and find it through the smog. City City Limits. Limits. Ruminations, 3CR's Rooming House and Homeless Persons Issues Program, featuring information on health and housing services, as well as live local guests, artists and performers from our unsung community. Join us at 12pm on Thursday on 3CR 855 AM. You are back with 3CR Community Radio. Um, As some of you may know, this year the Daniels Andrews government was supposed to set emissions reduction targets for 2025 and 2030. Unfortunately, things have hit a little bit of a hitch. And to tell us a bit more about that, we've got Lee Eubank from Friends of the Earth and um, Action on Climate um, on the phone to talk to us today. Lee, you there? Sure am. Hi, Lee. Um, so, first of all, uh, folks listening at home may not be entirely familiar with um, what was promised by the Daniel Andrews government. Um, what, what would be encompassed within, if, you, if it's possible to give us a short description, what would a emissions reduction target mean? Sure. So, a few years ago, we saw the Daniel Andrews government strengthen the state's climate change laws, and they also released a climate change framework for Victoria. And in that in that kind of policy package, we saw the Premier um, commit to delivering interim emissions reduction targets, and this would be the first kind of stepping stone targets for the state as we head towards zero emissions by 2050. And we were expecting them to actually 
commit and announce those targets this year. Um, but I think it's kind of become a little bit too difficult and they've kicked the can down the road, unfortunately. Mm. You say um, they've kicked the can down the road. Um, part of what's made it difficult is that the um, Victorian government was supposed to receive, this is my understanding, receive instruction from an independent panel. Um, do, do we have any word of what's delayed the independent panel from giving advice to the Victorian government? Is that, is that, some, is that what's pushed the issue back? Yeah, so um, we've got an independent panel chaired by um, Greg Combay, who was the former climate change minister for Australia under Julia Gillard. Um, they, yeah, they're currently putting together their advice to the government on the emissions reduction targets. Um, but yeah, for some reason that pl- that process has been delayed. Um, you know, it may it may have to do with the election mm. coming coming up in November, and that this issue is seen as one that's a little bit too difficult um, to deal with. Um, it, it might be other reasons, but nonetheless, Friends of the Earth are disappointed to see a delay um, to setting these targets. You know, looking around, you know, when you see the you know alarming warming um, that's affecting the polar ice caps, you know, we've just seen autumn bushfires. We simply don't have time to waste when it comes to tackling climate change. So... Um, you know, I think the government, it, it, would, it would be smart and advisable for the government just to get a wriggle on and set some targets. Mm, this, is, this was action, this, these targets that were supposed to be delivered the middle of this year and instead it's been pushed back to the, the, the first half of next year. Uh, mm. what, what kind of action, uh, without receiving um, uh, input from that independent panel, what kind of action would you hope for the Victorian government to take? Sure. I mean, in the meantime... We would love to see more investment in climate change solutions. Um, we do have the government, they're about to put out the, the budget, um, 2018-19 budget. Um, you know, that's a place where they don't need to wait for advice. Um, we all know how to cut emissions, you know, investing in renewables, investing in energy efficiency. Um, but we also need to see the government start to invest in um, resiliency measures, So for some communities, that might be um, providing a place where people can seek refuge from extreme heat and heat waves. For other communities, it will be, um, you know, enhancing bushfire uh, response. So, you know, we can see the government take, you know, take leadership on climate change in the budget. Um, But also, um, we do do know that um, the process for um, community to have their say on the targets is now open. So for, for your listeners, I'd, I'd encourage people to visit the, um, the Act on Climate or Friends of the Earth Melbourne um, Facebook pages and there is a really simple online way for you to have your say and to call for ambitious emissions reduction cuts. Wonderful. Well, thank you for, for putting that out there. Um, so are there, are there other things... Uh, that um, Friends of the Earth are interested in. I know that there's um, the campaigning around the Great Forest National Park has has quietened down a little bit lately. Um, is that still in the pipes? Mm. Yeah. Look, um, we are we're we're at full force um, in this pretty important election year. Mm. So yeah, Friends of the Earth. We've got five campaign collectives. Um, obviously, the Forest Collective is one of the most um, thriving. Um, they'll be continuing to make the call for 
the Great Forest National Park and also the Emerald Bink Reserve in East Gippsland. Um, you know, to tackle climate change, we do have to protect these precious forests. Um, they're among the most carbon-dense on Earth. And, you know, the fire regime associated with logged areas is actually a huge source of carbon emissions. And, you know, we'd love to see that that ended um, as quickly as possible. Wonderful. Uh, well, we've been speaking to Lee Eubank here on 3CR Community Radio about Victoria's climate um, emissions reduction targets and uh, the way that they've been pushed back. Lee, thank you so much for joining us on Monday Breakfast. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. 3CR Breakfast would like to say thanks to program sponsor The New International Bookshop for the financial support of this program. You can find Nibs in the basement of Trades Hall at 54 Victoria Street, Carlton. 3CR are selling kefir Palestinian scarves in support of the last factory that produces them in Hebron, Palestine. All profits will be donated to the reconstruction efforts in Gaza and support Palestinian industry. These are traditional scarves available in red and black, or you can choose from a modern design. Go to 3cr.org.au slash shop to buy online or drop into the station during business hours. You're back with Monday Breakfast here on 3CR Community Radio. Next up is Over the Wall, which is a look at the barriers to social support and safety nets from the perspective of those most affected and the worker advocates who support them. Lately, uh, Over the Wall has been speaking to Josh Cullinan from the Retail and Fast Food Workers Union, and this week they wrap up their long-form interview. Hello, I'm Duncan Graham, and this is Over the Wall. Today, we conclude our recent interview with Josh Cullinan. Secretary of the Retail and Fast Food Workers Union. We discuss Baker's Delight, problems in franchises and the problems of casualisation. Baker's Delight has over 700 stores in Australia, some of them run by the company, some by franchisees. In Victoria in particular, many staff are stuck on a 2006 employment agreement that expired in 2009 but still continues as a zombie agreement. Under this old agreement, workers often receive less than two-thirds of the current award rate for weekend work. Over a year ago, Brad Marsh was shocked to see the rates his daughter was being paid at one of the stores and began action in the Fair Work Commission with the help of the Retail and Fast Food Workers Union. Josh Cullinan takes up the story. Baker's Delight, our members were taken to court by their employer in Doncaster East of Melbourne who tried to argue that there was an old agreement that applied to their employment from work choices uh, rather than the award which the employer had already conceded uh, a year ago. So that case ran out over the second half of 2017 and in December we had a fantastic decision by the Federal Circuit Court entirely in favour of our members and in effect because of the way they ran their case it meant that it was in favour of all employees who had worked for this franchise group. 
we celebrated that outcome and launched a campaign on change.org for Baker's Delight head office to take responsibility for what was happening in its franchises. Baker's Delight head office was very disappointed with our online campaign and its success, and we're not particularly concerned by that. But for those workers, they have had their wages increased to be at least the award after being denied that for years. Unfortunately, that franchise still hasn't paid back pay or agreed on the minimum arrangements they have to for part-time employees, start and finish times, hours of work, things like that. Baker's Delight Head Office has been entirely silent in that and taking responsibility for it, which is no surprise to us. We've got other members at Baker's Delight who have not been paid for their annual leave and sick leave on the basis that they were purportedly earned a built-up rate or a loaded rate in lieu of those rights. The Fair Work Act makes clear that that doesn't apply. So any worker who's so-called getting a built-up rate who is part-time or full-time in lieu of annual leave or sick leave and works in retail or fast food should get in touch as well because the Fair Work Ombudsman's advice and the law is very clear on this. They should be getting paid leave when they take leave or at least an accrual in the meantime anyway. In 2015, a very public scandal erupted over the underpayment of 7-Eleven workers. Two years later, the Federal Government amended the Fair Work Act to make franchisors more responsible for the workplace obligations of their franchisees. As Baker's Delight is now subject to this legislation, I asked how this affects the company's owners. The Protecting Vulnerable Workers legislation of last September now makes it clear that a breach by the franchisee is a breach by the franchisor unless the franchisor takes reasonable steps. Baker's Delight says a reasonable step is us telling the franchisee they had to pay under the award. And we say, wow, that's garbage. A reasonable step is a hell of a lot more than that while this business keeps operating as a Baker's Delight and you should be doing a hell of a lot more than that. We can identify who the offending culprit is and theoretically the franchisor can be held responsible for those breaches as well. But these are workplaces made up of very often insecure young workers many of them very young. Outside of Victoria, some workplaces can be 13 or 14. Many of these workplaces in Victoria are 15, um, 16. And so workers are often in a very precarious position to be able to either commence litigation or to even raise the issues. That's why these franchise models require and deserve much greater scrutiny and responsibility placed on the franchise or who has all the resources and, to be frank, makes all the money. Most of the developed world has a system of zero-hours contracts for employment. In Australia, we call it casual employment and have an almost unique system of providing a standard 25% extra pay per hour to casuals to compensate for the lack of paid leave, termination payments, redundancy payments and other more intangible benefits. In the service sector, it can be easily shown that outside of weekday daylight hours, this 25% loading is almost never achieved in the award. Further, there are more and more benefits such as maternity leave that are being denied to casuals. Josh took up the theme, drawing on the international experience and the situation in higher education. I think it's without doubt that in the vast majority of circumstances, permanent employment is substantially better than casual employment. I think it's absolutely clear that casual employment should be massively limited. And there's all sorts of ways of doing that. At the moment, the employer groups and the largest private sector affiliate of the ACTU are looking to do that through casualising part-time work. 
at Domino's or in the fast food industry, and no doubt it'll come in retail. Um, that is not the solution. The solution should simply be legislative restrictions on the use of casual employment. It's worked in Europe. It's worked in New Zealand. It's not like these companies can't do it. In New Zealand, we know that McDonald's has abolished junior rates and it's abolishing zero-hour contracts or casual contracts. They're able to do it. They've got the capacity to do it. It's just that it's cheaper not to. And we really don't have that debate in Australia. And unfortunately, there is no organisation which speaks for casual workers. And there never has been. As far as I know, there never has been. There are also sectors of the economy which rely on casualisation. So I just spent 12 years working at the university staff union. It's beyond doubt that in universities, it's the casualisation of labour which funds the wages, uh, redundancies and retirements of non-casual workers in higher education. It's as blatant as a 25% casual loading, but there's no loading for 36 weeks maternity leave that casuals don't get. 17% superannuation, which casuals don't get. Promotions, which casuals don't get. Increments per year for each year of work that casuals don't get. There's no loading for any of those rights in higher education, and it's the benefits of the money saved in that which then goes to those workers that aren't casual, which unfortunately for the union is the massive majority of the union's membership. And so there's no voice in higher education, there's no voice in many other sectors, and what would be ideal, in my mind, is the giving of capacity to casual workers to have their own voice. Josh went on to explain why casuals think they are on a good wicket and are unlikely to join a union. I have no doubt that the vast majority of casual workers want secure work. Many of them are convinced that casual work has its benefits and that's part of what society has done, is convinced that there's this loading which means you will earn more. But when it comes to the point, and we deal with this every day with a casual member that contacts us and says, I've just lost my shifts, it is very, very hard to provide any genuine industrial support to a casual worker because they have such limited rights. And that's why we have such a low membership fee for casual workers. It's not just because we want them to be a part of our union. It's because we recognise there aren't that many rights that we can actually enforce for them. I'm a passionate advocate for casual work. It's where I got involved in the worker movement, having worked in various casual jobs and being sacked for unionising them or for speaking up. And I think that the more casual workers that can be involved in the debate, the better. And the sooner that we can obliterate the vast majority of casual employment, the better. We thank Josh Cullinan for his time and insights. And that was the last of the series of interviews with uh, with Josh Cullinan of the Retail and fa- uh, Fast Food Workers Union by Over the Wall. Great coverage there. You're back with 3CR Community Radio here on Monday Breakfast. And I have on the phone uh, 
Guido Mello and Cristiane Ramos, both representatives of LASNET. And um, we have them on the phone right now. Um, are you there, Guido? Yes. Good morning. Good morning. Uh, so we're um, going to be talking today about the recent political eruptions in Brazil, specifically on um, former President Lula da Silva and his um, his voluntarily going into police custody. Um, can you give us a bit of a background on the corruption case and um, and the the conversation from a left point of view? Um, just uh, I would like to introduce first Christiane as well, who is with me. Uh, Hello, guys. Hey, and we basically um, Lula has been um, fought, like constantly attacked uh, since he left his government um, by the fierce uh, right wing me- media and politicians in Brazil. Um, he's uh, suffering an accusation um, of of, um, of uh, bribery where there's no direct proof, uh, and it's uh, such a minor uh, offense where he's accused of having purchased a uh, a apartment, and um, he's being judged very quickly by the judicial system in Brazil, like uh, in a in a speed that um, it's very like unprecedented in the Brazilian history. And uh, yes, he's been condemned for twelve years um, in jail. Mm. And uh, so, so there's there's controversy around the corruption cases you highlighted around the veracity of the the, the claims made by the prosecution. However, um, the 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 judge who was presiding over the case, um, whose name I've forgotten, unfortunately, but has... Uh, Sergio Moro. Sergio Moro. Yes. wonderful, thank I you. I wish we all could forget that name, I have to say. <laughs> yeah, so, um, so there, was, there was some hesitation to convict Lula da Silva, is what I've heard, until um, the Brazilian military stepped in, is that right? Yes. Christiane, would you like to take from there? Yeah, yeah, look, um, if, you, if you just allow me to go back a little bit, because I think for an Australian audience... Hmm. Uh, it's important to understand the background to this. So Lula, he was first elected to office um, in 2002, and he was successful in two um, terms as, as the president of Brazil. So he was the president, I believe, from 2003 to 2010, I, I, if I remember well. Right. So he, right. he served two terms. And by the time he completed his second term, he actually left office with 87% approval ratings, which made him the most popular politician in the world of the time. So after he um, retired, effectively, he um, unfortunately, he was diagnosed with cancer. So he underwent treatment for um, a number of years. And then by the time he overcame that, then his successful uh, successful. Um, um, the person who took over from him, uh, Dilma Rousseff, she had been already um, elected, and then she was running a campaign or, or completing her first term going towards an election in 2014, which she was also successful. So we come to a situation in a country that was um, over a 500-year history, always the, the 
political elite was always right wing. You know, the government, successive governments over the years have been majority of um, the economical elites of the country. We end up in a situation where during four successful elections, the Workers' Party has um, taken power and has implemented real policies that lifted millions out of poverty and, and actually implemented a real change. It was a, a tangible. You could see the, the shift in society. It was remarkable. Yeah, Lula's, so, um, Lula's government saw Brazil lifted out of the, um, the UN Food Bank program is what I've, I've heard as well. Absolutely. So that's the background, okay? Mm -hmm. That's the background. So by the time Dilma was uh, elected a second time, then um, a a very strong destabilization campaign was initiated to actually remove the Workers' Party from power. But Lula being um, the the leader, the powerful leader, the, the inspiring leader that he is, he indicated early on that he would be willing to run for office again, and he would... All the polls indicate consistently that he would win. Some polls even indicate that he would win uh, on the first round of elections. So that that created a situation that what's the point of removing Dilma from power if in two years' time with the new presidential elections, uh, Lula was likely to, to take power again. So that that's also explains what happened subsequently. So this particular... Um, accusation relates to um, a property, an apartment, in a, in a city in São Paulo state called Guarujá. So the accusation is that the, the building society or the building company would have given that apartment to Lula in exchange for um, benefits that Lula would have would provide to them. Okay, but the entire case happened after Lula left office. Lula was actually a private citizen when all these events have happened. So how is it possible for corruption to exist when the the person at the receiving end of the corruption is not actually holding any public office whatsoever? And then not only that, the, the property, the apartment itself, has never been transferred to Lula's name. It actually belongs on paper, on the title. It still belongs to the building society. Has ownership has never been established or linked to Lula. So that's yeah. point number one. And yeah. then point number two, that there is to to be able to establish corruption, there has to be quipper call, which is the exchange. So okay, you give me something. What do I give you in exchange for that bribery? That also was never established. So here we are in a situation where Lula is accused of bribery, having received an apartment that he never received, and providing something in exchange that was never proven because it never happened. So basically, there's no crime. Mm. And, yeah. and the whole prosecution case has no evidence like uh, proving evidence of any corruption whatsoever. The only thing they have is the word of uh, a convicted criminal uh, who used to be an executive on the building company who had been previously sentenced to a very large term in jail, and then he uh, did a plea bargain with the prosecution when he um, uh, made accusations to Lula without any evidence, without any proof, in exchange for a significant reduction to his sentence, mm-hmm. which has already been granted. So the whole case is assembled.
And yeah, yet, um, Lulita Silva remains in, pr- oh, yeah? in this situation. That's why we are in this situation. And, and mm. uh, Brazil is not going to accept this. I guarantee you. Yes, but uh, he remains in prison. So if uh, if his appeals against imprisonment are not successful, what will the implications be for the October elections? Who who on the left is rising up to take his place? That's a bit of a grey area mm. because his work party. He, yeah, he has an abandoned. Yeah, no. I just would like to say that he has an abandoned uh, the possibility uh, until he um, completely empty the possibility that he will be able to run. Mm. Uh, I think these discussions are not have been held yet, especially mm. by his party. Um, we believe an uh, election without him will be an election without uh, full fraud. authority. It's a fraud, fraud basically. But um, we have we we living day by day. We're still hoping that he will be able to run from the inside. Uh, but now we, we're not sure. Uh, and Christiani, um, yeah, he's being he's being subject to political persecution. Like there's ignorance, uh, everyone's ignoring the evidence of his innocence, and this is triggering a crisis on the rule of law in Brazil. And this is not just a coincidence, and it's not just about the men; it's about the very future of Brazilian democracy, the very future. Of South American democracy, who really depends on on Brazil uh, democracy because yeah. of its size. Mm, okay. yeah. Look, Lula is um, undeniably the biggest leader in a country. You know, for better or for worse, believing him or not, he is the greatest leader uh, that has emerged in Brazil since uh, Getúlio Vargas. Probably the only one who could. Be comparable to to Lula. So if you if you ask us, ah, well, in Lula's absence, what what's the likely scenario? It's very unpredictable. And the Brazilian Electoral Commission, it, it's um, they have their own um, times, their own timelines for you know um, submitting our name to 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 run for office and etc. So uh, the Workers Party is saying to us at the moment that Lula is their candidate, that he will put his name up in mid-August, I believe that's the deadline. And then from that time onward, the election happens in October and then November. So it's a very short time frame. So with all the, the legal appeals that do exist that are in parallel to the criminal justice, so all these that we have been discussing so far is criminal justice. It's not what goes on in the Electoral Commission. Electoral Commission process hasn't started yet. So with all the legal appeals, he, he's likely to actually be able to run a campaign. And he might actually be elected in the first round. And then that creates an unprecedented situation that we don't really know um, uh, the results. There are other leadership, other, uh, leadership emerging in, in the left of politics, but nobody with the, 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 the level of... Um, report with the Brazilian public as, as Lula. Lula is just at another level. Okay, thank you so much for joining us here on Monday Breakfast. We've been speaking to Guido Melo and Cristiane Ramos from LASNET, the Latin American Solidarity Network, representatives of that organization. Uh, thank you so much for joining us on Monday Breakfast. Uh, absolutely, and please get, get in touch with us again uh, if there's um, any movement in there. We have to talk again. We have to, to help to clarify to the Australian public 
anything coming from Brazil. We appreciate your time as well. Absolutely. Thank you for joining us. Bye-bye. Thank you. Bye-bye. You're listening to Monday Breakfast. Yeah, I spent three and a half years living on the street and I know what it's like to have no hope and not to feel a part of the society and I think that's where a lot of these people are. But I think we need to help people who are traumatised and help people get back on their feet and give them hope and help them um, feel like they're a part of the society again instead of just moving them on like they're an inconvenience. If it were not for ruminations, how would the views of those of us who have been homeless or are homeless, how would these views ever be aired? How would they ever be expressed? Subscribe to the station that gives airtime to people with a lived experience of homelessness. Support 3CR. The Sewer Show. Squatters and unwaged airwaves. Presenting views, news and interviews from the Centrelink queues. Information on your squatting, legal and other rights. Troublemaking news from around the world. Coming at you every Friday between 5.30 and 6.30pm on 3CR. our 3CR Radical Radio t-shirts and so do we. They're a bargain at $20 for adults and $15 for kids and come in black, white, grey and a cool light blue. To nab one of these beauties, drop into the station at 21 Smith Street or order by phoning 9419-8377. Or you can visit us online at 3cr.org.au forward slash shop. Come on, you know you want one. Hi, I'm Rod Quantock and you're listening to Fill in the Dots, you know who you're listening to Why do I have to tell you who you're listening to? You know who you're listening to You're listening to, yes, Fill in the 3CR Community Radio, you got it right You've won a giraffe uh, We're at 8.55am, we're on digital radio and streaming at 3cr.org.au 3CR has been making trouble since 1976 and occasionally I've been part of the trouble that's been made. It's a vital part of our uh, media landscape and I'd encourage you to get a hacksaw, an oxyacetylene torch and go up to the Dandenongs and, and bring down all those broadcast towers that aren't 3CR's towers and let's make 3CR the only source of information to an information-starved, dumbed-down Australian community. Written, authorised and spoken by... By Neil Mitchell. Tune in, dig deep, and clean up by purchasing some fantastic discounted gardening books from 3CR's online garden store. We have books on waterwise gardening, organic vegetables, roses, climbers, and creepers, and even clematis. It's easy. Just go to our website, 3cr.org.au, and follow the links on the front page. Don't have internet access? 
Call the station during business hours between 9 and 5 and we'll post out a catalogue in the mail. All proceeds help keep Melbourne's favourite gardening show on air for another year. Tune in 7.30am every Sunday morning. As part of 3CR's breakfast uh, coverage of the Stolen Wolf Games protests, uh, we bring you some voices from Camp Freedom. Hey, so um, I'm doing this recording for 3CR and for other radio stations around Australia. Camping in a, a field on the Gold Coast to protest against the Commonwealth Games, or as we call it here, the Stolen Wealth Games. And so I'm sitting down with, um, with a man here. You want to introduce yourself? Uh, yeah, I'm Albert Arpnett. I'm a Wankamara, one of rural men from around southwest Queensland and Newcastle area. So you've come up to protest against the Commonwealth Games? Yeah, we've been we've, there's been plans underway for quite a while now to um, to get mob come down here to Gold Coast to protest again at these Commonwealth Games. So yeah, we've been planning for a little while to come down and just support the, the mob this year. What's been happening so far? You guys went out the other night for the opening ceremony. Yeah, we've um, we've had a couple of actions over the over the, the last few days. Arrived, um, arrived here at um, Camp Freedom, which we've dubbed it. Uh, <laughs> we've, um, since uh, Monday, we've um, Tuesday we've had the baton relay come through. We've um, blocked the road. We've blocked the road. We've um, interrupted the the journey of the the Commonwealth baton from um, from the spit, um, and that baton is a is a symbol of. Um, of uh, genocidal intent with the, from the Commonwealth and these 70 countries that are competing at these games are part of that um, genocidal um, regime. Mm-hmm. You want to tell everyone why you woke up so early this morning? Um, yeah, we've been <laughs> up this morning and um, we got word that Prince Charles was was um, at staying up the resort just up the road from SeaWorld. Yeah, right. Where we're only about a kilometre away, so... We um, we made plans once we got word that he was up there to to go up and make presence felt that um, before he went to, up to on his journey to Bundaberg. Did he come out? Did he see you guys there? Um, he, he, was come out the, when you were there? he was in the motel. We had the police negotiators inform us that he wasn't in the motel, but um, as we, we later on we found out that um, he had to delay his um, his royal plans. Um, for um, for two hours, and that was because there was a strong Aboriginal presence um, oh, at the front of that um, the, the the resort. Yeah. And um, not only that, it forced uh, um, Peter Beatty from outside of the the resort as well to to talk to a couple of representatives. Yeah, right. So. Um, I think uh, the waking up early is, uh, was a good call to, <laughs> to ensure that we, uh, Prince Charlie and um, his entourage were, um, were informed that Aboriginal people are, um, are still unhappy with, um, with the way that they have come and seized our, our, our tribal lands and now we wish to reclaim them. Uh, definitely. I think that's a pretty important thing uh, for, um, for this information to keep being spread out and for people to be aware of it, that actually things aren't better, even if it looks better from the outside, actually, people who are living in this situation. Like. Uh, 
you could uh, you could earn as much as you want as an Aboriginal person in this country. You are still dispossessed. Your people are still being oppressed by a colonial system. We are oppressed by a common law that does not agree with the terms and conditions of our ancient law. Our ancient law is not recognised. We have we have tribal people up here that are claiming that our law are the, not claiming, but us are. are letting people know that our law is the first law and if our law is the first law and we are the first peoples then we don't agree with what the commonwealth has, has done in terms of illegally occupying our lands well then that means that they have to surrender it back into the care of the original custodians plain and simple and we need our support like we said, with solidarity and our own sovereignty, mm-hmm. we're the ones that stop all the injustices. We're the ones that take back control of our of our communities. We're the ones that take it, uh, predetermine what happens in the future of our lives and our children's. That's what we always argue for. That's what we fight for. So when you're out there and you're thinking about what's happening if your child has been stolen or if you have a family member that has died in, in custody or you are faced with the, with the genocidal policies of the, that exist in this country today, then you need to be here at Camp Freedom and you need to start to support our mobs and band together and create that solidarity so that we stop those injustices and we control what happens in our country. We control the, the mineral assets of our countries so that we can build up wealth and improve our livelihoods. Get off your asses, people. You know, get off your bums and get down here and say, well, look, we've had enough. Because I've had enough, and all these people here at Camp Freedom have had enough. So come down, we've got a week to go. Get down here and support us, and let's bring justice back. And there's a lot of strength between everyone here as well, no? Oh, there's, there's heaps of strength. You yeah, can, yeah. You can feel the building. And, um, yeah. And like I said, we've got we've got old men here that have that have um, that have been through through law and they've um, you know still speak and and, and, and dance and, and and practice their their customs, you know. From what I've seen, there's a lot of old old men, old women, also a lot of kids as well, no? Yeah. Which is amazing to have the the whole age of rangers coming through and spending time here. A lot of kids getting up and dancing as well and. You know, sharing that through, which seems really powerful to see in this space, like... Yeah, well, it's, it's good to see that we've got um, got a good mix of everyone, I think. Like I said, it's important. Yeah, definitely, yeah. to pass all of this on. And grandmothers Against Removals have been fighting against uh, the theft of our kids, you know. We've got the Indigenous Social Justice Association uh, fighting against the, the death and custody of our people. You know, but we've got black people that are selling us out. You know, that doesn't speak for us. We hear our peoples across the country saying, this is the time we've got to come together and stop it. Because we know the treaty isn't going to solve all our problems. We know that the white man's going to tell us one thing and do another thing. Let's not fall into their traps. Let's not look at what they want us to do. Let's determine our own future. Let's determine what we want. Come down here. So, if anyone's around on the Gold Coast, or if they want to get involved in uh, well, anyone in the struggle, the p- down in Doug Jennings Park, which anyone, is just next to SeaWorld. Anyone around the country, don't yeah. you, you'll find out where we are. You should look up Stolen Wealth Games on the internet as well. Yeah, you don't need a, you don't need to 
anything, you know, you should get <laughs> enough price to get the band together and get mm-hmm. a group of you to come down, come down. Mm-hmm. Because the support is only going to further your justice, not the white man's justice. You want to give us a bit of info about what's happening tomorrow as well? As much as you can <coughs> say on the on the airwaves before it happens? Um, we've just, um, like I said, maintaining a strong presence and we've got the opportunity tomorrow to, um, to march down to Broadbeach. Um, there's a few events going on down at um, Broadbeach. So we want to maintain a, a presence and a focus on, on ensuring that we get a message across to, to the people that are here. And... Um, and we just need to look at how we coordinate ourselves and how we um, how we how we manage to um, articulate a good response and a good um, good action to to further our cause. Mm-hmm. We've never ceded our sovereignty. We own our lands. We own our, we we own the rights to our own intellectual property rights. We own the rights to our minerals that these white people are digging up on our countries. You know, we have the rights to a, a good, healthy life that we used to enjoy before the white fellows come here. You know, we should be able to walk out on our countries and get our get our traditional tucker and eat our traditional tucker without proving to a illegal colonial system that has come and taken what is not rightfully theirs. You know, we know what's going on. We don't have to be smart black fellows with a with, with a with a certificate. You know, one old fella here from up in up in the Northern Territory, old up Murray said, you know, he's an MBE. He's a member of the Black Empire, <laughs> and that's what all these white people try to put up behind their names to say that they're qualified to speak on behalf of other people. When we know they're not, stop lying to ourselves. You know, we can't say, oh, no, but I've got to this to do. I've got to go to work. I've got to go to do this. Conform to the colonial bullshit if you want to, but stop saying that you're a black fella sick of the way that we're being treated and we've got no country. You know, it's not about it's not about the, the, the money anymore. It's because if you're accepting the money of any of these white companies, you're, you're complying and you're complicit with what's happening to your children, what's happening to your young men and women that are dying in their cells. If you're paying your taxes, you are paying to oppress yourself, you silly fools. You're paying the government to oppress us. You're paying them to kill us. You're paying them to steal our kids. But I'm proud because I work. Think about where your taxes go and think about your democratic right not to identify where your money is going to. You know, you don't have no rights. You do not have no say over where those monies are going. But, yeah, I'll go and still collect my pay packet because I'm a good worker. I'm a good colonial worker who stole my people's country and stole my culture and stole my language and come here and rape their mothers and aunties and sisters and nieces. You know, this is what I want to, this is what I want to represent my job, you know. Who do you represent as a black fella? Ask yourself that. If you want to go and work, go and work, my people. But don't cry when these white men come and kick you in the guts and take your children. Do not cry when one of your nieces or nephews end up dying because of these white people. Because you're paying for that. Through your jobs and your tax that you pay, you are paying for that.
start being realistic. Start being open about what, what was going on. And that's what Camp Freedom is about, is stopping that. And that was Albert Artner up at Camp Freedom as part of the Stolen Wealth Games protests, interviewed by Croft, who is also a host of Global Intifada here on 3CR Community Radio. You've been listening to Monday Breakfast. I hope you've enjoyed the show. We're going to be podcasting the whole thing, and you'll be able to access that from around midday off of our website, which is 3cr.org.au. And next up is Women on the Line. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.